So yeah, so that's the deal. It's not easy to convince people. First of all, it's not easy to explain. Even people that have been listening to me now for, what, five years? Mm-hmm. You think they would get it by now. They show up to every webinar and a webinar is a sales meeting. And I say the same thing every single time. And every single time I'll get a comment, man, every time I go to your webinar, I learn something new. (laughs) I'm like, really? I haven't said anything new in five years. But office hours in the academy, that's where you can learn. Welcome, BoomXers. Let's throw out the old playbook. It's time to tear down the traditional way of looking at your life and money. And leverage the laws of money to our advantage. That's right. There are actually laws of money, and those who learn them and leverage them win. Stay tuned as asset protection attorney Daryl Tuttle, educator and leader of the BoomX Nation, shows us how. I don't know if you can hear this, but in the background is Russell Brunson on Facebook, and he is walking potential customers of his through his latest project and he's talking about sales funnels and click funnels and what's amazing about him and all the other people that I see on YouTube who know how to sell something. They talk so fast and they are just consistent. They don't seem to make any sort of mistake in their presentation. Whereas for me, I, I am not that smooth and I really just kind of get my legs under me when I'm having a conversation with another person And I've learned that I'm never going to be smooth. I'm never going to be a great salesperson as Russell Brunson and these big names in the entrepreneurial world are. And I should not try. And another thing I've learned is audio. So the quality of audio, I have been told on a podcast, should be perfect. I now live in a culture on the Caribbean where it is just loud. And I've postponed sending out podcast because I just couldn't find a quiet moment. What with the party atmosphere here and the roosters that are crowing all the time. And I hope that you accept this new episode, season three, episode 44. That's amazing. The Boom X Show. Today, I have a great conversation with a smart young man. And by smart, I mean, he is clearly an educated, but thoughtful person. And he, I don't know how old he is, but he's got to be 30 years younger than me. But I respect his opinion. And we talk about a very interesting way to invest money that offers a few things that other investments will not give you, namely privacy. And we explain what that means. And more importantly, as far as I'm concerned, as an estate tax and elder law attorney, planning attorney, is an ability to pay for a future tax, a state tax. Remember, there are 10 states in America that have an additional estate tax other than the federal system in the future. And his name, first of all, I want to say he's from Chicago, one of my favorite towns. His name is Sari Ibrahim. And if I got your name wrong, Sari, I apologize. I'm working on it. All the resources that he mentions and his website are links in the show notes. You can just click it to learn more about him. And so let's just dive in right where the conversation picked up. You're going to hear candid moments between the two of us, what we're really thinking, and I think that you will get something out of it. What about you? What's going on with you? Yeah, I think we talked about that. I'm a financial planner. I'm doing the Certified Financial Planner Program, about almost done with it, almost done with that program. And 
Yeah, just helping clients mostly with the bank on yourself concepts, similar to the infinite banking concept and the long-term approach to financial planning. And now with you now, we could probably talk about estate planning and elder law and the after part of planning financially. Right. Yeah. Tell me, like if you had just time enough with a couple potential clients or just maybe somebody you meet some casually and they found out that you were an advisor, what is like the one thing? You have limited time. The most important thing, what unique problem in the world are you trying to solve for your clients? Yeah, it's helping solve the, the problem of thinking to the next generation, right? I think a lot of people don't think about that, but that's really important. Planning for the next generation. How does the next generation continue to do what you've done, but even probably at, at a higher level, of course, right? Better education, more financial freedom. Uh, so I would get them to probably solve that problem, thinking about the next generation, which is hard to do, right? When, when it's not here, when it's not now, it's, it's difficult to think that way. Right. Let's get into the nuts and bolts of it. So your thing is generational wealth, basically. I read this article. I was reading an operations manual for attorneys on LLCs. Mm -hmm. And there's this one sentence that really resonated with me. And it's wealth as a family collaborative. And I'm like, that's it. That's what I've been trying to say is bring the family together. My clients, I don't know about yours, but they just have this instinct to just Give the kids everything outright. Yeah. And then they just blow it within a generation. What is your program? How do you solve that problem? Tell me about the nuts and bolts of your offering and your solution and the service that you provide. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So consistent with the bank on yourself concept, we're using high cash value whole life insurance in a way where you can use a lot of the cash value while you're alive in the meantime. And then, of course, still the death benefits do grow over time. So we do try to grow them as much as possible for the next generation. So that's exactly what some of our meetings are talking about. We're talking about usually starts off first with them becoming their own source of financing, them building up cash, them using that cash for their business or for real estate. And then ultimately it becomes about the next generation. So typically that's one of the strategies we use passing the wealth through the life insurance policy to the next generation. Yeah. And then, of course, as you know, right, being an attorney, there's tax benefits with doing that. And then also asset protection. Like in my state, in the state of Illinois, correct me if I'm wrong, I'm not an attorney, but the cash value and the life insurance are protected from creditors. I think the only exception is you have to list your spouse as the beneficiary on the policy. Other than that, so this is a really good way to protect your money, have it grow, have a compound and keep it out of the hands of creditors. Right. One of the things that I try to point out to people, okay, there's a question before I get to this point, and that yeah. is, how do you deal with people's sometimes visceral reaction to the word life insurance or whole life? They, they, yeah, you're they, right. Yeah, definitely. It has a very powerful, it could really stop a conversation quickly, right? Um, <laughs> it sure can, man. And that's why I do a lot of podcasting like this right now, and we do a lot, we have our podcast, Thinking Like a Bank. So we try to share that content with people to give them the benefits. I show them some of the relevant benefits, right, for them, because there's so many different ways it can go and it can benefit people. But I think it has to be the right benefits for the right person. So I try to share as much content as possible with people. So that way, when we are talking, we go to the financial analysis meeting, and then it comes time to present the solution. It's not really that big of a surprise now because they've already heard me say it on podcasts. I've already spoken to them. They've reached out with questions about how the concept works. 
there's many books out there about this concept. You know, I didn't invent this concept. It's been happening since life insurance companies have been in business, which is over well over 100 years, right? So these are like almost like secret strategies the wealthy have been using. And I think that when people start learning about infinite banking and they start learning about bank on yourself, it breaks that barrier. So what they're comfortable now hearing whole life insurance because they look at it from the point of what it can do, not what it's called anymore, but what it can do. I frankly, I don't care what it's called. It's, 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 I'm looking more of how do we grow wealth on a tax saver basis? How do we pass it to the next generation on a tax saver basis? How do we protect it from creditors? And how do we even help against the unexpected costs of long-term care, which we were talking about before we were recording? So I think when people look at it from those functions and those aspects, then it kind of changes. Yeah. My first exposure to life insurance, well, I was a young lawyer and we had this problem in Washington. We have a $2 million death tax credit and a lot of people are above $2 million. And so mm -hmm. one thing that we can do is use a credit shelter trust or we can do lifetime gifting. But once we get to those advanced concepts, like we've run out of all the easy things to do, yeah. then you're looking at wealth replacement and sometimes charitable trust. Both are hard to sell to the mm -hmm. client. And so there is this great, whoever came up with this, I'm not saying he was a genius, but he was a pretty smart dude. So gift to an irrevocable trust. And so that money's out of the estate. So the taxable estate's going down as you gift, right? That's just lifetime gifting. Then once it's in the trust, the trustee buys life insurance on the client's life. So when the client dies, like at some point, there's going to be an estate tax. And if you know it's $500,000 in the future, then the trustee can buy with the trust proceeds a life insurance policy that just magically has a death benefit of 500K but the premiums were only 150K. And so you paid the estate tax ahead of time, pennies on the dollar, and it's all tax-free. <laughs> you know, I mean, like, well, what's not to like? What I've learned is I have to describe the concept and get the client to agree with it before I mention the word life insurance, because once they hear that, they just freak out. And I'm like, you guys, <laughs> forget yeah. about what it's called. Think about what it does. Yeah. I wonder what exactly is behind the negative response to life insurance. It's very odd I, how people are either open to it or they are just simply not open to it. I wonder what caused that. Do you know? Yeah, I think number one, it's the term life insurance, right? The words. So you have to die so the beneficiaries can get that money. So now there's already a turn off in itself, the aspect of death being involved. And then the second thing too is probably like Dave Ramsey and Susie Orman and like other media financial influencers out there who have been talking about like never put cash into a whole life policy. It's the dumbest thing you could do or any type of cash value life policy. Even a lot of financial advisors I run into sometimes, they'd say like, why would you ever buy anything beyond? And I think that when you say it that way, like ever, it's too broad. I think that there's a lot of things you're excluding. You're excluding, like for example, somebody's 40 years old today, they're in good health financial advisor says, skip whole life. Don't do anything with cash value life insurance. Only do term for a 30-year term. Okay, that I see that perspective. I'll agree with them. I see that perspective Dur during just that 30-year period. And then they get term life insurance. And then at age 70 now, they're diagnosed with a, a condition, which is not a surprise for a 70-year-old. And now they can't renew that term. And if they could renew that term, the term life, com the, the company that's offered the term policy could have some sort of provision that increases the term premium monthly. Every month they could increase that term premium. And the vast majority of people in that situation end up canceling the term life policy because it gets way too expensive. It goes $1,000 a month, $1,500 a month, 
$2,000 a month and, and until they tap out, they cancel. And then uh, next year or two years after that, the person ends up passing away. But if they had a whole life policy in place, we can set it up so that way you pay in it for 30 years. And then at the end of the 30-year period, it keeps growing. The cash value and the life insurance keep growing regardless of market conditions without any more premiums. You could use it for long-term care. You could use it to pass out to the next generation. You could use it to finance other investments. And then by the time the person passes away, let's say 80, 90 years old, then they've accumulated all this money without having to worry about the premiums at, at, at that age. So you kind of get it like long-term beyond today's rates. It changes everything. Because today I could show you, Daryl, quote for a million dollars, 40 years old, term life insurance will be like, let's just say $150 a month, not that much. And then a whole life policy for a million dollars on a 40 year old could be $30,000 a year. You know what I mean? But the problem with that is we're just looking at it at today's rates and today's debt benefit. What about the premiums that are building up? What about the tax benefits? What about the ability to use it for long-term care expenses? What about everything else afterwards? I think that's what people need to really open their eyes to and see. Yeah. So I've been a lawyer now for 27 years. And when I was younger, I kind of took it, but you know, now I'm grumpy. <laughs> yeah. Basically for earlier in my career, I, I get these old farts with their spreadsheets and they're not really trying to plan that they're using financial planning and estate planning as recreation and retirement. Yeah. And their big thing battle cry was buy term and invest the difference. Right. Yes. And I'm like, even those guys, I've been a lawyer for 27 years. I have never seen anybody in my entire career actually do it. You say it, but no one does it. And yeah. if you think about whole life or even, I don't really understand the difference between universal life and whole life. Yeah. I'm not sure it matters, but really it, there's a cash value in whole life that's increasing in value. And there's a death benefit of it could be flat or it could be maybe fluctuating a little bit, but if it's a 500K death benefit and the cash value is maybe 50K and growing, isn't that the same thing? Like basically the insurance company is doing it for you. <laughs> yeah. And I would think far less risk than some guy riding the stock market with a spreadsheet and not agile enough to adjust when we have a market adjustment like we're having right now. I think, not to belabor the point, but you know, this 12-year bull market just skewed people's perspective on re really how the market works. And why take a risk with something? Well, that's the other thing. But uh, let me get your reaction to that part first. Yeah. And then I kind of want to talk about how these guys think it's an investment when really it's a strategy. It's a long-term generational wealth vehicle that investing does not offer. But uh, by term invested difference, emotionally, isn't that just baloney really when it comes to deployment on the ground yeah it is it even mentions that in the certified financial planner program it mentions that some advisors might compare whole life insurance to doing term and investing the difference and even in that situation even in the text as it mentions that's a highly unlikely situation that people are going to get a term policy and they're going to stick to a monthly allocation like every month they're going to invest a difference in the stock market and then let's just say people did that. Let's just say that everybody did actually follow that. The problem with that is what if the market is down? Are you going to keep putting money into it when it's down? And then the market's up, you're going to keep buying when it's too high. I think it's too narrow to always say that no matter what, you'll put money in the stock market because it's not always the best place to put money. It fluctuates, it goes down in value. It sometimes could be good. Sometimes it could not be not a good time to buy. But also you mentioned like you're, when you do a whole life policy, even though it's not an investment, you're outsourcing part of the growing the wealth part to the insurance company. 
And the insurance company has arguably the best track record as far as growing wealth. They've been in business for over 100 years. They've been paying out dividends to their clients. They've been paying out life insurance claims. They've been providing loans to other financial institutions and their policy owners. So they have much more stability. There's actually a book called All About Annuities. And the author mentions in the book that there's 2,000 life insurance companies in the United States. If you took all their reserves, all the life insurance companies' reserves, and you pulled it together, it would be more cash than all of the banks and oil companies in the world combined. And it kind of gives you a relative comparison to how much cash U.S. life insurance companies are actually sitting on. Arguably, they have the most cash in the world, and probably a lot of things that happen internationally happen because of the financing of life insurance companies. They're building some headquarters in Switzerland or Germany or whatever. A U.S. life insurance company probably has something to do with funding that. So this isn't like the financial advisor down the street who's really good at following the S&P 500 or the Nasdaq. This is greater than 100-year organization with arguably the most cash in the world handling your money. You know, so I think that people need to understand that they're not trying this out. They're not experimenting with this life policy to see if it might work. They've done it over. They guarantee that they can maintain a life insurance amount and cash value amount until age 121. And then at that point, they give you the endowment, the endowment age, whatever it is, whatever that amount is, the death benefit at age 121, they give it, they give you that. So they're that confident that they can maintain their assumptions and dividends. Well, one of the experience, the second experience that I had with life insurance as a professional was I worked tangentially on a portfolio of a bank and these big banks have what they call bully bank owns life insurance. And so people are like, oh, you know, the banks, that's better. That's this or that, or they're used to a bank. But banks have, I'm not saying they have a lot of credibility (laughs) and integrity, but they have some. And uh, all the banks, what they do is they buy life insurance on the lives of their employees because they have an insurable interest. And then it's their job to keep track of the retired employee, figure out if he died or not. But they see the cash value on the books. They see the tax-free death benefit, tax-deferred growth, and then a tax-free payout. And to them, it's a good investment. And so I'm like, all the banks in America, the big ones, have billions of dollars in life insurance. And somehow Dave Ramsey thinks it's baloney. <laughs> you know? I'm like, I don't understand. Yeah, 100%. They're the biggest purchasers of life insurance. I think as of now, it's $300 billion. And just banks in the U.S. have about $300 billion in life insurance. So yeah, they're the biggest purchasers of it. And that number is increasing. I think it grew by about 33% over the last three years. When I first checked the number, it was around $200 million three years ago. And then now it's about $300 billion, sorry. So that number is increasing. And yeah, you're right. They do that for the tax benefits. They do that for the growth too. And they're also required. I think the Federal Reserve requires them to have 25% of their reserves in a life insurance policy, either universal life or whole life insurance. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. Yeah. So there's legal requirements for banks to own life insurance. Sometimes the old farts go, you know, the security, the life insurance company might go under. And I'm like, okay, there, there is a guaranteed fund yeah. in Washington state. And of course, they point out it's only $500,000 limit or whatever. Mm-hmm. At that point, you know, the guy's just arguing with you. But so get this, the security of a bank as compared to life insurance. So the bully portfolio of this project was owned by Washington Mutual, which yeah. is now defunct. It was one of the big culprits in the uh, 2008 uh, mortgage-backed security downfall. Yeah. 
And so that bank went under. The bully portfolio is 100% intact. Another big yeah. bank, I can't remember who, which one, just bought it. <laughs> and so it just poured it over because it's a good, secure investment for any bank. It's ridiculous. Yeah, exactly. And even for small businesses and individuals, when you buy life insurance and the cash value and the life insurance, it's on your assets. It's on the asset side, your balance sheet. So in some situations, you could sell it with your business, like how you mentioned with the bank did. So yeah, it's definitely, it's not a sunk cost. It's not something that you just spend money on. I think term is like that. So even though we do a lot of term policies, right, some clients only need it for certain things. Like sometimes when you get a loan, like a commercial loan, a bank might require you to get a life insurance policy and then have them assigned to it in case you pass away, they could collect the remaining principal and interest owed on there from the death benefits and then give the rest to your beneficiary. So I see some benefits of term, but even with the term policy, every month as you're paying those premiums, those are sunk costs. It's going and you can't recoup, you can't replenish that money that you've spent with a term policy. With whole life insurance, on the other hand, it grows, I usually use mutual life insurance companies. So it's going to a mutually owned life insurance company in which you're a mutual owner of, and then you end up getting that money back through compound interest in the cash value and the dividends and the growth of it. So you end up recouping your initial costs in a whole life policy, whereas a term, it's kind of like that money's, that money's gone unless you pass away and that money goes to your beneficiary within that time period. Well, like a buy-sell agreement for yeah. like law firms, you get the partners for the partners. In Washington state, probably every state, only lawyers can own a law firm. And so uh -huh. one partner passes away and now you got a problem because his last will and testament estate plan left everything to his wife to include his ownership interest in the law firm. Mm -hmm. And so now a non-lawyer potentially owns a share. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, that's a problem. And so the law firm will just buy out his interest. And it seems to me like term would be a better product in that case, because you're only insuring the life of the partner for what, 20 years. So that's an example of term making sense. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. Definitely agree. I feel like we're the warriors fighting disinformation. I listened to the Dave Ramsey. Dave Ramsey bothers me for a lot of reasons. He's about my age. We're both bald, so all bald men look the same. But <laughs> one difference is he, he's just a mean guy. <laughs> like, yeah. The way he treats people is just horrible. And he thinks he's all that. And so he gets on this rant about banking. And it won't even let the person who called in to ask the question, like, really finished the question yeah. <laughs> and he goes on this rant and one of the things he keeps focusing on is prudential and uh, how they're crooks and how infinite banking and whole life and all this well you go to their website they don't even sell whole life <laughs> yeah yeah and i don't even think they're a mutually owned company they're not <laughs> yeah. but you should watch the video you probably have seen it but pay yeah. attention to that part of it because he just ready fire aim <laughs> sort of yeah. thing it bothers me because a lot of people listen to him and think that he knows anything about planning. He's never consulted with a client and given advice in exchange for a fee in his entire life, let alone for 27 years. He's never worked on a case. He seems to be completely unaware that there are 10 states that have a separate estate tax. I've heard him say, you don't need to hire a lawyer unless your estate's over 24 million, thinking of the federal limit, right? Yeah. And I'm like, okay, what about Oregon? <laughs> Like everybody, but Oregon's credit amount is only a million bucks. Anything above that, it's taxable. We have the highest rate, by the way. We're number one. We have a, up to a 20% death tax rate in Washington. Wow. Right. And just think about life insurance. People have their assets tied up doing other things. And if you know 
there's a 20% reduction in my portfolio when I die over 2 million, a business would say, okay, let's come up, let's earmark that and let's uh, apply a solution now and then forget about it. And they don't get into all this emotional turmoil about what it's called. And using a trust, it makes a lot more sense, but even just buying a policy, when I die, here is a 500K kids paid the death tax. The worst thing that's going to happen, not the worst thing, like one of the other benefits is the kids go, man, my dad was a rock star. He even paid the tax. You should hear what kids say about their parents after they pass away. If they didn't plan, there's a lot of grumbling and it ruins their memory of their parent, actually. And people don't take that into consideration. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. And you could actually do them almost like a disservice by leaving them a bunch of assets and a big tax bill, especially right if those assets aren't liquid assets. Like what if it's all real estate? Now they have to, like what would they do in that situation? They'd have to either sell some real estate to pay the death tax or even oh, yeah. borrow against yeah, so, so the property. They don't even think about it. would put them in like a... Uh, yeah, okay. like the real estate guys, like rental property guys, that's a different breed there. And... They have great wealth and a lot is just not, they don't have the liquidity that other like stock market guys. And they had this different mindset. And I don't know about you, but I've never run into a rental property guy who could even conceive of insurance. I mean, they have liability insurance. That's it basically. Yeah. And so that, that's a hard argument for those guys, but they don't understand liquidity. And the only thing to do is sell. At least they get a step up in basis. The kids do. So that's nice. But another thing too, myth, it's a lot of people think like family is wealth collaborative. That article was basically saying people keep their wealth secret and that causes a lot of problems. At the same time, they appoint their children to be the agent under a power of attorney. And you get the call. Just imagine getting the call. Mom fell, broke a hip, she had a stroke. And you're like, and they say, and you're the agent under the power of attorney. A lot of kids don't even know they were appointed. Mm-hmm. Follow me? Yeah. And then it's this. Uh, where, what does my mom own? I, I have to apply for Medicaid. She can only have 2000 bucks. What does she own? I can't even find any paperwork. Like annuities and life insurance, they only send, back in the day, it was uh, one letter a year yeah. <laughs> that told you what you had. And now it's all online. And so yeah. just imagine you make a Medicaid application, not realizing that your mom is a millionaire. It's very yeah. common. There's a lot of secret millionaires. And what they do is at the reading of the will, that's when the mm-hmm. kids find out that actually they weren't poor. They didn't need to recycle paper plates and were millionaires. Surprise. <laughs> and a better approach would be just to include them. Because what I've found is like this gift of life insurance at debt, like a life insurance, death benefit, tax-free paid out to the estate. So the kids have liquidity to pay some bills. Rockstar. Instead, what happens, the stress that comes with an unorganized estate plan is off the charts. Like I used to buy tissue at Costco because everyone, all these kids would come in when the parents were dying or dead and just, it was so emotional and people, because the kids were at odds with their feelings of grief, 
but also frustration and anger that everything was in disarray and stress as to what to do next. And I think that life insurance, like if you think about it in terms of a soft landing for your family, yeah. who wouldn't buy out? What kind of mean person wouldn't buy out? Well, besides Dave Ramsey. I mean, he definitely has a personality cult. <laughs> I mean, you know. Yeah. Okay, yeah, so I, mean, I wanted to drill down because we're running out of time here a little bit. When I did the podcast on infinite banking, what I really liked about it was you can, I'm going to screw this up, so bear with me because it's been a while now since I thought about it, but you can take a loan out, but really it's as if you never took the loan out. The cash value is still accruing. I thought, okay, I'm going to take a withdrawal from the cash value. That's what a bank would do. You had a debt, a credit card bill, and you're like, oh man, this thing's accruing at 18%. I better pay it. And so you go to the bank, you take out money from your savings account. You used to have $10,000 in your savings account, and now you only have five. What's weird about infinite banking is you can take out money from this policy that you purchased, but the cash value is still 10000 and it's still accruing. Is that true? Yeah, 100%. Yeah. So you have the cash value, you have the life insurance, right? The death benefit. And both of those are growing every year. And then anytime you want to borrow, that's the keyword borrow, you take out a loan from the life insurance company using your policy as collateral. So that's how it's possible. Because a lot of times we're like, how can I put money in something and then take money out and it keeps growing? You're not technically taking money out of it. You're using your policy as collateral. And when you're borrowing from the life insurance company, you're taking out a loan a, like a personal loan from the life insurance company using your policy as collateral. And that's how it's able to keep growing. So ultimately what happens is it doesn't make a difference whether you take out a loan or not, as far as your anticipated non-guaranteed dividends and your overall cash value growth and the life insurance growth. It has to be with a company that has something called non-direct recognition. So when you take out that loan, they don't recognize that loan and crediting your account um, interest and dividends. Some companies, when you take out a loan against your life policy, they'll stop the uh, interest or dividend, so it interrupts the growth of the policy. Um, and then other companies, like the ones we use, they're mutually owned, non-direct recognition companies. So they don't recognize that loan and crediting your account. And that's what you want. It's very similar to the real estate model, right? Where if you have a real estate property, let's just say you owned it without a mortgage, the property's worth, the market value of the property's worth half a million dollars. And then you go to a bank and then you take out a loan. Let's just say you take out a $100,000 loan and you tell the bank, I'm going to have this house as collateral. That loan that you took out doesn't interrupt the market value of the property, nor does it interrupt the appreciation. The property keeps appreciating, it keeps growing, even with that outstanding bank loan. The same thing with whole life insurance. You're taking out a loan against an asset that you own. And this is really like, you've probably seen this more than me. A lot of wealthy people, especially ultra wealthy people, they have a lot of debt, but they also have a lot of assets. And the assets they own, the, the hope is that the assets they own outpace and outgrow the debt they have. So there's like an arbitrage. They have millions of dollars in real estate. They also have millions of dollars in debt, but the real estate and the assets are growing. They're outpacing what they're spending on interest and their overall debt. So they're coming out ahead. Even Trump is one of the biggest borrowers of banks. So it's not something where when you borrow, it's not so much of you need the money. It, it could be definitely a wealth 
creating tool as well as an asset protection tool, of course, when you have a lot of things with debt. So that kind of mentality is where whole life insurance comes in, is you have a, an asset that grows, and then when you borrow against it, it keeps growing, and then it even has an arbitrage. So the growth of the whole life policy outpaces what you paid to borrow that money. Is that what Dave Ramsey was freaking out about? I didn't really follow the conversation, but he was talking yeah. about mutual life insurance companies. And then he called the other type something else. I forgot. And I'm like, what is, I don't, what's the big deal? Now I get it. I think what you're saying is this certain type of company allowed the difference to the client in this particular scenario is when they take a loan out, the cash value is still accruing. The other type of company won't do that. Is that the difference? Yeah, exactly. Yes. Yeah, exactly. Another thing too he was saying was that when you borrow, he was saying like as if it was negative, like you have to put money in a whole life policy. And then when you want money, you have to borrow. Like he was saying in a very negative tone, like as if that's a really bad thing. When you go further into that, like why people do that is so that way they're not interrupting the growth of it. Because anytime you buy something for with cash, you interrupt the growth of that cash. So this way it allows you to grow your money, borrow against it, buy the assets you want to buy or whatever that you want to buy, and it keeps growing and then you pay it back on your own terms and then you end up coming out ahead. So you're always preserving your cash and you're always increasing your cash value. Dave Ramsey has a dysfunctional relationship with debt. He's very simple-minded yeah. and his approach is debt is bad, never have it. Okay, so why do top investors and businesses understand the concept of leverage Yes. Which is like leverage. He just doesn't, that's just too much for him to comprehend. Yeah. And I love it. Another thing I like about it is two things. Mm -hmm. One, as I understand it, it doesn't seem like Shannon and family leaders at the Boom X Academy. She's only 35 years old. She's the one that got me into it. She asked me, what do you think? Well, I don't know. I'll, I'll look into it. Then I came back with a thumbs up. And then she said, good, because last year I bought a policy. <laughs> She didn't tell me that ahead of time because she didn't want to influence my thinking on it. But she pointed out, she goes, what's great is these guys, unlike a bank or a credit card company every month, where's our payment? Mm -hmm. The bank seems, to, or the life insurance company is, we're going to get it from you when you die. So we don't really care. <laughs> like every year she goes, once a year, I get a statement that says, this is what it is, pay it or not. And you can just go on to the next. And so to me, that's when the light bulb went off. Oh my God. So I can take money out and get some liquidity and it's still accruing cash value. It's not imploding the policy. And really, if I didn't want to, it'll just come out when I pass. Life insurance company's fine. And I had money to work with. Now I can pay off the credit card bill. That's the thing that Dave Ramsey doesn't get. His lack of sophistication really works against him because in a sense, this is his message. Use money intelligently to pay off debt. If you used this policy to pay off your credit card bill because you went to Hawaii and got a little crazy, <laughs> perfect, right? I mean, yep. that's just like there's more money accruing at this percentage than would have been going out at the credit card company. The spread is the intelligent part and he just doesn't get it. The other thing I like is privacy. Like it's my bank. As compared to going to the bank and talking to those guys, you know, it's horrible. <laughs> Don't you think? I, I have a negative. I can remember taking out, I got a large cashier's check and the teller goes, oh, you're going to buy a house? <laughs> and I'm like, 
I know you're just making chit chat, but mind your own business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think yeah, I think they have to ask these questions like nonchalantly because the banks are probably like in case if, if there's a problem or something comes up, the banker could be like, oh yeah, I asked him what this large purchase was for. I get it. The good thing is with whole life insurance policies, I can if I have the cash value in the policy, I can literally print out one form, sign it, say I want whatever I don't know a hundred thousand dollars. The insurance company's not going to call me and say, hey, we're on the way to sending you this $100,000, but what do you need it for? Just We're just curious. I'll never get that call. As long as I have the cash value in the policy, there's no credit checks, there's no pre-screening, none of that. They send you the, they wire transfer the money to you or send you a check. And then when you get that money, you can pay it back whenever you want. You can pay back monthly payments, annual payments. You can pay interest only to the insurance company. You could, like you said, just wait until you die and then they take it from the life insurance. So there's yeah. definitely far more privacy and protection, right? So you don't have like, they're not going to send a letter to a government agency saying this person took out a loan in the amount of this much, like how a lot of banks are required to disclose certain information to the IRS and things like that. So you're really, you're preventing a lot of doors from opening, especially when you're a real estate investor, you're a business owner, you're growing your wealth, it can grow in, inside the policy and, and then you don't have to give up. So a lot of people say, yeah, but I like real estate a lot. You don't have to give up real estate. You can use the policy to amplify your real estate and grow your empire. Where you're the banker. You have the real estate. And then instead of going to banks for properties, you can go to yourself for properties. Now, what I recommend, like people always do that. No, I think that still banks can still come in handy, right? For mortgages and usually like asset-backed lines of credit usually are more favorable. But if you wanted to, if you wanted to completely exclude banks, you could do so if you wanted to. Got you. So tell me what resources you have on your end to help my listeners understand and maybe even move in that direction. Yeah, definitely. So you can check out our podcast, Thinking Like a Bank. It's, you can find it at thinkinglikeabank.com. There's an ebook you could download. There's the book, Becoming Your Own Banker by Nelson Nash. It's a really good book on the introduction to this concept. And then you could also check out the book, The Bank on Yourself Revolution by Pamela Yellen. If you go to our website, you can find all these resources at that website, thinkinglikeabank.com. Thinkinglikeabank.com. I love it. Very good. <laughs> you know, I'm studying Spanish. I live in Puerto Rico, yeah. so... <laughs> I, I chose a place with the worst dialect, the hardest dialect to learn, and I have no talent for language. In Spanish, an I is pronounced like an E. Yeah. And so I'm looking at your last name. Pronounce it for me. Yeah, Ibrahim. Yeah, so it's got that e, that Ibrahim. Do you pronounce the H? Yeah, yeah, Ibrahim. Oh, yeah. yeah. So in Spanish, I think it would be Ibrahim. Yeah. So what is your ancestry? Yeah, originally from the Middle East, from Palestine. Right, okay. You're not telling me what part of the Middle East? Palestine. <laughs> I got you. I grew up in the uh, 80s and the PLO. And so yeah. back in those days, you had to be careful <laughs> when yeah. you said which side you were on. You know, I grew up in Washington, so it wasn't that big a deal. But I can imagine in some communities. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. It'd be a problem. I want to thank you so much for being on the show. I really learned a lot. I'm going to check out your site. And for the listeners out there, don't worry because... All of these references and resources that he mentioned will be in the episode notes. You can also go to boomxacademy.com and listen to the art podcast again, and I'm going to have more information on it. We'll definitely have the intelligent professional back on the show. Thank, Thank you, you so much for taking time with me today. Thanks, Errol. Yep. Bye.